We are continuing and nearing the conclusion of a series of lessons on Sunday morning under the theme, The New Testament Christian. And of late, we have been focusing on one particular topic in that theme, The New Testament Christian Never Stops Growing. And we determined to conclude the series with a study of the areas in the Christian's life in which he or she never stops growing. And we've based that part of this study on 1 Peter. Our key text is chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, where Peter admonishes, therefore laying aside all malice, all guile, hypocrisy, envy, and evil speaking, as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby. The milk of the word that you may grow thereby. We could say milk of the word that you may grow <clears throat> to the meat of the word, that is, to mature. In fact, the, the Hebrews writer chastises the Hebrew Christians in the Hebrew epistle for a time when they should have grown to that point where they could teach others and yet still had need that someone teach them again the very first principles of the oracles of God and had become such as were in need of milk and not solid food, Hebrews 5, verses 12 through 14. And so it is clear from the New Testament that growth is an absolute essentiality in the life of the Christian. But in what should we grow? We've been looking at key words from 1 Peter to remind ourselves of the areas in which we should grow in grace as verse 2 of chapter 1 reminds us. And Peter in his second epistle, as we've noted, admonishes clearly in 2 Peter 3.18, but grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we'll get to knowledge before this series is concluded. We also mentioned uh, peace, to grow in peace, and then faith, and, and also love, and to grow in our hope to grow in these various areas, and we've discussed them. Today we look at two more areas in which we are to grow, and that is the area of holiness and also fear. Yes, fear. And what does the Bible enjoin upon us when it enjoins us to grow in fear? We'll see that as we look at these passages. But we base this part of our study on 1 Peter 1. We'll look at verses 13 and following to gain the context more fully, where Peter writes, Therefore gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ, as obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lust, as in your ignorance. But what should we do, Peter? Verse 15, But as he who called you is holy you also be holy in all your conduct. And then verse 16, because it is written, be holy for I am holy. And then we'll go ahead and read verse 17 because it pertains to our second point in our lesson this morning, and that is the, the need to grow in fear. And if you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your sojourning here, in fear. Fear. Should we grow in fear? Yes, and we'll see that. Should we grow in holiness? Should we become more holy? 
Now, we realize that when we become Christians, we become set apart, and that's the basic idea of holiness. But are we to become more holy from the standpoint of growing in holiness? And does the Bible address this in any way? In other words, are we to become more like the one who is perfect in holiness? And that is God and, of course, Christ. There's a song in our songbooks. It's number 134. You don't have to turn there because I, I'm going to display it for you on the screen. It's a beautiful hymn, and really as I looked at this and thought about including this in our discussion of holiness, it occurred to me that basically it becomes a very good summary. If you think about it and look at these words, it becomes a very good summary of everything we're talking about, basically, in terms of growth in general and the need to, to grow in so many areas. More holiness give me. More strivings within. More patience in suffering. More sorrow for sin. More faith in my Savior. More sense of His care. More joy. We've looked at joy. That was one of the things I didn't mention a while ago. We've already looked at more joy. Should we grow in joy? We've already studied that. More joy in His service. More purpose in prayer. More gratitude give me. More trust in the Lord. More pride in His glory. More hope in His word. More tears for His sorrows. More pain at His grief. More meekness in trial. More praise for relief. More purity give me. More strength to overcome. More freedom from earth stains. More longing for home more fit for the kingdom, more used would I be, more blessed and holy, more Savior like thee. That last line is a beautiful summary of all of these things that are mentioned in this hymn, in particularly written by Philip Bliss, who if I looked at the dates of his birth and death, accurately lived to be only 38 years old. This is a beautiful and, I believe, a completely scriptural hymn. It begins, and it is entitled, More Holiness Give Me. Does the Bible reinforce that truth or establish that truth that is reflected by the writer of that hymn? We'll look at a couple of passages. In the Roman epistle, that I believe do establish the truth that is reflected in the title of that beautiful hymn, More Holiness Give Me. Here Paul writes, I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh, for just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and law, of lawlessness, notice this, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness or leading to, as some translations render it, holiness. And the word for is the word ace in the Greek, the same, the same word that repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of your sins, that is, in order to have remission of sins, in order to have holiness, or leading to holiness. 
is the idea here. And what a passage this is. And we'll look at a, a companion text a few verses later in just a moment, which is already there on the screen for you, Romans 6.22. But notice, as you presented your members as what? Slaves. As slaves of uncleanness. He's talking about the time before these Roman Christians had become Christians. How were they characterized by the inspired apostle before they became Christians? They were slaves. They were in slaves. They were in slavery to Satan. They were his slaves. They were in bondage to the things of the world and slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness that generally leads to what? Less lawlessness? No. Lawlessness compounded. More lawlessness. Well, now, by way of contrast, here's what you need to lay on the line once and for all. Determined to present your members now as what? Slaves. Make that commitment. It's very much like Romans 12, 1 and 2. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Make that kind of complete commitment that you are now slaves of righteousness for leading to holiness, a greater degree of holiness, more holiness, give me. I believe that expression is certainly reflected here in this text, as it is in Romans 6.22. But now having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, here's that same thought of the transition, the complete transformation that has taken place. You have your fruit too in the direction of holiness. Not that you're not already holy, but obviously you are to set your sights on the Holy One who is perfection, who is holiness in perfection. Gets us back to 1 Peter 1. As he who called you is holy. How holy is the one who has called you? He is perfect in holiness. You also be holy. And that word be can be accurately determined to be become holy. Become holy in all your conduct. And here's the standard, again reinforced in verse 16 of 1 Peter 1, because it is written, be holy, for I am holy. Remember Matthew 5, 48, be therefore perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. We talked about that in class recently. The fact is that he is, he is perfection, sinless perfection. We are not sinless perfection, but our determination should be to strive for sinless perfection. Our standard of holiness is the one who is perfect in holiness. And we're to devote every fiber of our being to being that holy. Now as human beings we fall short of that and thanks be to God we have the blood of Christ that cleanses us and keeps us cleansed as we nonetheless strive to what? Grow every day in holiness, as well as these other attributes that we are studying in this portion of this series. Having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to or leading to holiness and notice. And the ultimate end is the idea here. The ultimate end, as you continue to grow in holiness and all these other characteristics, the ultimate end is what? Everlasting life. But the key is we have to, as we have sung this morning in another hymn, devote the remnant of our days, devote the remnant of our days 
to his glory. Did you think about those words when we sang them? They are sobering. They are sobering. I will devote the remnant of my days to what? Glorifying God. There's where my determination is. I will, as we look at another text along this line, pursue peace with all people and holiness. And if you don't think holiness needs to be a concern and that we should not keep it uppermost in our minds as we think about these passages in 1 Peter and these we're looking at, without which no one will see the Lord. You'll never see the Lord without holiness. Should I be content with a smattering of it? Or should I be determined to devote my life to being as close to the perfection of holiness that God himself is? The answer, I believe, is obvious. And then look at 2 Corinthians 7 and verse 1. Therefore, having these promises... Therefore, having these promises, and what did he just talked about? Go back with me before we go further. There to the latter part of chapter 6 of 2 Corinthians. Therefore, come out from among them, verse 17, and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. What a promise. I will be what? A father to you. And you shall be my sons and daughters. The God of heaven. Promising. Promising to be a father to us. The Lord God Almighty being a father to us. Then we're there to the therefore. Having these promises having these wonderful promises that exceed any earthly promise that anyone could ever offer us, beloved, let us what? Cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit. Now notice this, perfecting holiness, bringing holiness to maturity, bringing holiness to perfection in the fear of God. And so while it is said that we become holy, a separate people when we become Christians, there's no question about that. And the synonym is sanctification. There is nonetheless a sense in Scripture in which holiness and sanctification, those two terms are viewed as a process in which we grow every day if we apply ourselves to the things that will produce that growth. But the latter part of this verse leads to our second point in our study this morning, fear. Notice he says, perfecting holiness in what? The fear of God. As you perfect holiness, you need to do so fearing God at the same time. But what does that fear involve? Is it dread and and terror? Is it fear and trembling in that sense? Well, let's look at how the word is used in Scripture. Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done 
through the apostles. Now, what's the context of that statement? The context of that statement is the birthday of the church. That is, when the church of our Lord, the church of Christ, came into existence on this earth as a result of the preaching of Peter and the other apostles on the first Pentecost following the resurrection and ascension of Christ. And a portion of Peter's sermon is recorded for us there. The culmination of which is seen in verse 36. Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. In verse 37, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? We've talked about these passages before, and I do not doubt that the fear that I believe would be clearly inherent in this statement, though not specifically stated, cut to the heart, is evident, and that it, it would be dread and terror. To a great extent, right now, those who heard it, who were concerned enough to to be concerned about it, what they had heard, that did scare them. I don't doubt that. They were cut to the heart, and when they said, what shall we do? I don't believe that their hearts were filled overflowing at that point with love and gratitude. But probably, and I think primarily, dread and terror. Because they had just been convicted of crucifying the Son of God, and they accepted, they accepted that indictment. Some 3,000 did, anyway, and they wanted to know what to do to be relieved of the obvious guilt and I think accompanying fear in a bad sense that was there. But then we go on. Then Peter said to them, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. Remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises to you and to your children, to all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. And we don't know what the many other words were, but we do know that with many other words he testified and exhorted, saying, save yourselves from this perverse generation. And whatever those words were, they began to produce a transformation from dread and terror primarily, to gladness and gratitude because verse 41 says, Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship in the breaking of bread and in prayers. And now we're back to verse 43. Then fear came upon every soul. Do you believe that that's the same kind of fear that we read about in verse 37? Men and brethren, what shall we do? Absolutely not. What we have here is reverential fear and awe. And they were seeing, they were seeing among them signs and wonders being done by the apostles. They had experienced the relief from the guilt of sin 
that had burdened them so heavily when they heard that they had been guilty of crucifying the Christ, the Son of the living God, there was a sense of relief and gratitude and love that produced fear in a much different sense than it was initially created within them, and that is reverential awe and respect for, for God and for Christ and for the church to which they had been added. Many wonders and signs were done through the apostles, and fear came upon every soul. But that is reverential fear, not, not horror. But the word, and we've talked about the word before, that is so often translated fear in the New Testament, is the word from which we get our word phobia. And there are all sorts of phobias, acrophobia, and what is it, arachnophobia? That's the fear of spiders. My wife has that. <laughs> and I have to kill all the spiders in the house <laughs> when they come around. Uh, but we have all sorts of phobias. And that's the word here. Then phobia came upon every soul. But the key is, what kind of phobia was it? Phobia and various forms of that word are used in the New Testament in a negative, but also many times in a positive way. And that's the case with 1 Peter 1.17, the verse from which we got our key word to begin with today on fear. And if you call on the Father who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear. The context, in other words, has to determine what kind of fear is involved. Now think about it. and You'll see that that's clearly the case. Otherwise, the Bible would be contradicting itself time and time again. Because we've just read a passage that says, conduct yourselves for how long? Throughout the time of your, I love the way the New King James translates this, your stay here, your stay here. Because it reminds me of when you go on vacation or you go visit and someone says, well, I, you know, you check into a hotel or motel, I hope you enjoy your stay. You're not moving in. You're just staying there for a while. And you understand that. And many times, though you enjoy going, when you come home, you say what? Oh, it is so good to be home. <laughs> so good to be home. Well, what Peter is reminding Christians of here is that you are not at home. You are not at home in this world. As long as you're in this world, you're not at home. And I believe that may be one of the greatest challenges we face as Christians. That challenge of not feeling at home in this world. Because this world wants you to feel very much at home in it. This world, Satan, the god of this world, worldly things, wants you to feel very much at home here. So much so that as we've talked about many times before, you get so attached to things, so attached to people that you lose sight of the fact that you are a stranger, a sojourner, a pilgrim, those expressions that the Bible uses in other passages, that you are here as 
one who is sojourning or staying here, but this is not your home. That's something we should never lose sight of. Now back to the analogy of going on vacation. If I check into a nice hotel somewhere and my wife and I stay there for a period of time and we enjoy various activities, is that wrong to enjoy that? Well, of course not. But if that kind of thing, that kind of activity, that kind of pleasure had to be, became constant in my life and became so important in my life that I had to be doing something, buying something, going somewhere, or doing something of a worldly nature to be happy and lost sight of the fact that, that this world is not my home, then I'd have a problem. In other words, it's like people who love to play golf. And if you tell them there are no golf courses in heaven, they may be prone to say or at least think momentarily, well, I don't want to go then. There are not 18 holes at least up there. I don't want to go. People can get too attached to things, to relationships. But having said that, God has never said you should not enjoy relationships and things that he himself has provided for us to enjoy. The key is prioritizing. The key is keeping things in perspective. And part of that is what Peter tells us here about fear. While you are here as a sojourner, in your stay here, while you can enjoy things that are good and right and in and of themselves not wrong, don't lose sight of the fact that this is not your home and stay here in fear. That is, with that constant reverential awe and respect and love for God. So the whole time we're here, we're to fear. That's right. But now look with me, and this passage is not on the screen, but look at John, 1 John 4, 18, a passage we looked at before, where John, the same inspired, he's, he's inspired just as Peter was when he wrote 1 Peter 1, 17, here, John writes, there is no fear in love. And you know what the word fear there is? The very same word that it is in 1 Peter 1.17. Very same word. That phobia word. But it simply demonstrates what is clearly set forth in Scripture, that that word phobia or some form of it can either be negative or positive. In Peter's case, he's talking about it in the sense of reverential fear and respect and awe. The awe of God. The same kind of fear that those who saw the many wonders and signs done among the apostles experienced. But when John writes about it in 1 John 4, 18, he's talking about phobia in the negative sense. There's no fear of that nature in love, but perfect love casts out, keeps on casting out fear. Because fear involves torment, but he who fears has not been made perfect in love. And so there is a fear that we're to have the whole time we live and a fear that we are to never have if we're letting love cast it out as it should. The right kind of fear, yes. The wrong kind of fear, no. But the kind of fear that we are to have is the kind of fear that produces, that produces a feeling of of never wanting to displease God, never wanting to do anything 
that would displease him. But to live in fear and trembling in the sense that we, we, just, we dis, dis, detest and abhor the idea that anything I would do would be displeasing to God, that kind of positive, healthy fear. And it's that kind of fear that will certainly keep us where God wants us to be and where we can truly be happy because our focus is upon fearing God in the proper sense and not on the things of this world. Where is your focus this morning? Are you growing in holiness? Are you growing in fear? Are you growing in these attributes that we're studying in the last part of this series? Well, to grow in the Lord in all of these areas, it becomes absolutely essential to be in the Lord before you can grow in the Lord, doesn't it? And how can I be in the Lord? Only by a belief in the Lord that moves me to repent of my sins, confess Him as the Christ, and then to be buried with Him in baptism for the remission of sins. If you haven't done those things to be in the Lord, we plead with you to do that this morning. If you know this morning you have not been growing in the Lord because you have allowed too much of the world to enter your life and to distract you and that your fear of the Lord in that proper sense has waned and your love has dissipated, come home in repentance as we stand to sing to encourage you.